Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Sugar-Free Revolution founder Karen Thompson is a recovering sugar addict and founder of the Harmony Eating and Lifestyle Program. Karen and the addiction specialist on the Sugar-Free Revolution team believe that addiction is a disease, one that is incredibly difficult to tackle alone. The Sugar-Free Revolution online support forum and blog were designed to offer guidance and support to those who wish to live a sustainable, sugar-free life. By working closely with recovering sugar addicts and other people seeking recovery, participants are given the chance to realize that they are not alone in their addiction and behaviors and that there is hope for freedom. Since launching Sugar-Free Revolution, Karen has also written a book, Sugar-Free, Eight Weeks to Freedom from Sugar and Carb Addiction and together with Professor Tim Noakes, has launched and hosted the first international LCHF Health Summit. Her book, Sugar-Free, Eight Weeks to Freedom from Sugar and Carb Addiction, is packed with scientific research and nutritional advice to help you understand addiction to sugar and carbohydrates, including a chapter by Dr. Nicola Vina, research neuroscientist, author, and expert in nutrition, diet, and addiction. It provides eight weeks of meal plans, both vegetarian and non-vegetarian, by nutritionist Emily McGuire, and includes journal exercises to help you break free from the mental, physical, and emotional traps of old eating patterns. Ultimately, her book shows the way to a sustainable sugar-free lifestyle. Its simple and effective eight-week program to quit sugar will enable you and your family to enjoy dramatically improved health, increased energy levels, and weight loss. Karin's 15-plus years of combined experience in the health and wellness industry has informed her current role and has equipped her to take on additional responsibilities and solve new and interesting problems should the need ever arise. Her background showcases a deep commitment to public health and innovating the industry. Her peers, friends, and business partners alike recognize Karin as an effective communicator, relationship builder, and compassionate industry leader. We are so honored and excited to have her here to speak with us today. Welcome, Karin. Thank you again so much for being here, Karin. We are so excited to share your story. So can you tell our listeners just a bit about your history with sugar and carbohydrate addiction? What was your aha moment that food and sugar was the issue or that it was even a possibility that it was the issue? Well, first of all, I love that you called me Karin because I mean, I feel like that's the biggest privilege ever that you got my name right. So thank you for that. And, you know, with my journey with sugar and carb addiction, it started at such a young age. It started for me, I think, with my first memories from the age of four, where I had been in rehab for a while. And I'll get to how that happened. And my counselor there was trying to help me figure out like where my addiction started. And because, you know, you write your life story and you go back and I went right back to these memories of when I was four years old and I was using foods, as specifically sugar and carbs, to control. And whether I would restrict or whether I would only eat sugar and carbs, it kind of vacillated between those behaviors depending on what I was trying to achieve. And so, you know, sweet foods always made me feel better. There were times that I remember when I was little, when I was feeling really down or alone. And so reaching for sugary foods and even fruit, 
like fruit really was like my first sweet addiction because I didn't really have a sweet or candy or anything when I was little. So, so those behaviors and those addictive memories and the behavior that later led me to other addictions started with sugar when I was so young. So to kind of get back to the story of my addiction, I've always been an anxious person. And so soothing myself with food, as I mentioned, started at a very young age. And when experience of trauma in my life, as we all do, I don't really have the coping mechanism to deal with them in a constructive and a healthy manner. And so I would turn to look for this external solution to this internal problem. And that's where like food was bad. And then later it went into other things like alcohol. I remember the first time I drank, I could not stop. I didn't even like the taste of it. But once I started, I couldn't stop. And that's the behavior that I learned when I was eating sugar. Like once I started, I could not stop. It wasn't about hunger in any way. It was about control and then and being out of control and unmanageable. So it went on to alcohol. And then I got into the modeling industry and at the age of 16. And I mean... <laughs> Talk about the worst possible industry for me to get into. I strongly believe in us attracting the experiences that we're putting out there to ourselves in order to heal, but also to kind of keep that addictive cycle alive. And so the experience that I attracted to myself was being in the modeling industry and just never feeling good enough, never feeling beautiful enough, never feeling thin enough. Those core beliefs that were established when I was a little kid, like engaging in behaviors that constantly reinforce them. I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. I'm not beautiful. Anyway, and so getting into the modeling industry constantly reinforced these beliefs to me over and over again. And I desperately needed to deal with them. And so I started doing drugs. I started doing drugs because I was pressured into doing it. I mean, you didn't really have to pressure me. I was given an option to do it and I chose to do it. And from that moment, the first time I tried, it was cocaine. I felt so beautiful. I felt so confident. I felt everything that I'd been longing to feel when I did this. And I became addicted to those feelings, those feelings that I couldn't naturally bring to myself. And so I went on this downward spiral of alcoholism and drug addiction. And even before that, like anorexia, bulimia, overeating. And so it wasn't that I ever was just one addiction or eating. It like vacillated, but it, like whatever circumstance I was in or phase in my life, it was like, it was just one or the other or a combination of all of them. And so I ended up in rehab at the age of 24. I had stopped modeling. I was doing styling at that point. I was looking after a friend's house in this beautiful place. And I had partied like crazy the night before. And I woke up, I was 24 and I remember like stumbling to the mirror and just like drinking from the tap because I felt so dehydrated. And I remember like looking at myself in the mirror and just not recognizing the person that was staring back at me. And I think the scariest thing was like looking at myself and seeing the emptiness in my eyes, like the little girl that I remembered, like there was no one present, like there was no one home. I had given up my dreams, my passion, like everything that I wanted to be, like I had no idea where that had gone. It was like such a huge part of my life. I just eaten up this person that I had been who had so much passion for life and had this like, I wanted to really live and experience life fully. And I hadn't, I had like died this death. And so that moment was a huge awakening for me, but I didn't know if I could continue living. I didn't know if I could continue on the path of not knowing who I was and having no sense of purpose or direction. And at that moment, I made a decision to either take my own life or to choose a life in recovery. And, you know, that day always 
it's such a great reminder of my rock bottom and why I don't ever want to go back there. And so that day, I asked my parents for help. I checked into rehab. I was in an inpatient treatment center for nine months, which is a long period of time. But I was like so messed up. You know, from the outside, it didn't seem like that. I didn't have a needle in my arm. I didn't suffer from like PTs when I was withdrawing from anything. I looked like a normal person, like maybe a little bit thin, but it was just that spiritually I was bankrupt and emotionally I was a little child and I was empty. I was empty and I was alone. And so to build that up took a long period of time. And it was during this process that I had the most incredible counselor who wasn't willing to give up on me. And that was at a point where I wanted to give up on myself. And he was like, I'm going to fight for you until you can learn to fight for yourself. And he really did. He went above and beyond to get me on the right track. And he was the one that pointed out to me that my addiction started with an eating disorder when I was really young. And so that started a process of me like looking at things and trying to discover like, where it came from and what it was. Because I always want to know, like I want to understand. I don't just take things for granted. Like I need to understand this for myself. And that's why I make so many freaking mistakes because no matter what anybody tells me, like I'm going to do it anyway and I'm going to figure it out. And whether I make the mistakes or not, like it's irrelevant. So I started really delving deep into this. And then I was in South Africa at the time. And then I got married, had kids. And one day I was watching this TV program and we had an addiction treatment center that we were running. I was watching this program on TV and there was a professor called Professor Tim Noakes and he was on this TV show and he mentioned sugar and addiction in the same sentence and I had this like huge like light bulb moment I was like that's me that's what I do the same behavior that I exhibited with drugs and alcohol the binging the purging the hiding the guilt the shame the fear that spiral of that addiction like this is what I'm doing with sugar And so sugar is an addiction. It's a process addiction and it's a chemical addiction because it affects my hormones, my physiology, like everything. But it also is a behavioral addiction in that I need and want to do more like behaviorally to feed this, like gambling or sex addiction or those that don't necessarily have a substance that changes the way you are. And so I started doing a lot of research into that and we started a program, but I've been talking for like 300 hours. So... (laughs) that's me no no that was amazing like and it just brought up so many questions for me and I could relate so much to your story and how addiction interaction disorder takes place in all of our lives and for me I had the anorexia and the bulimia as well and so I can speak to that and you know when you are just in that eating disorder world you are told that this is just something you're going to live with and it's going to be part of the rest of your life. And now I know in your inpatient treatment center, you guys dealt with both eating disorder and sugar addiction. Was the treatment modalities different or what did that? Okay. It definitely was. So with anorexia and sometimes with bulimia, but mostly with anorexia, we didn't necessarily take away the sugar because of the restrictive component of anorexia. And it also being more of a psychiatric illness in the way that we treated it than just like a process addiction. Although it is both, it definitely fits in, but we didn't want to encourage more restriction around food. And so the focus definitely was on whole food as close to its natural state as possible and no junk food and no sugar. But we didn't focus as much on the food as we would with like the sugar and the carb addicts. Like there was so much more underlying the anorexic behavior that the bigger focus definitely was the trauma therapy and understanding where that came from and that abandonment of self. And obviously the exercise stuff wasn't as intense as it was for the food addicts or the sugar addicts. And so there were definitely different ways in which we treated it. But the psychiatric component was a lot more intense, should I say, with anorexics and and the treatment of that population. 
It can be challenging, of course, because with food addiction, and you know, even if you look at binge eating disorder, it's definitely there's disordered eating behaviors within food addiction and sugar addiction addicts. And so how do you determine? How did you guys at that point determine which camp this patient fits in? Well, I think any overeating disorder, any patient that presented with prediabetes, diabetes, overweight, obese, or self-identified as a sugar addict, and this was more for the outpatient program, but for the inpatient program, obesity, diabetes, and Afrikaans, which is my native language, is translates into sugar sickness. So any of those chronic disease, chronic illnesses that could benefit from cutting out sugar, those are the ones that we treated as sugar addicts. So I think Clarissa and I are on the same page here. It feels like South Africa is probably further ahead on this whole thing than North America. I mean, we've got you, we've got Dr. Saivas, we've got Dr. Tim Noakes, you know, like just to name a few kind of big name people, right? And so can you speak to us about the pushback maybe that you've experienced here in the U.S. with trying to open food and sugar addiction clinics here or even something similar to your Harmony program? What was the response? Like, was there pushback in South Africa compared to the U.S. or more in the U.S.? Yeah, talk to us about that because we are super interested. So there was pushback in South Africa, for sure. I mean, it was big. It was like a lot of the dietitians went straight after Professor Noakes and rehab license, like with the Department of Health. And so many complaints were emailed and called into the Department of Health, calling for us to be shut down because what we were doing wasn't ethical, as if telling people to stop eating refined carbs, sugar and junk was unethical. I mean, I feel like the opposite is the unethical component of it. But we definitely faced a lot of backlash and a lot from the dietitian group. And then the same group group that then took Professor Noakes to court and tried to get his medical license revoked as well. So a lot of the treatment industry was very against what we were doing because they still had that belief in moderation is key. So everything in moderation is key. But for me, a sugar added like, what, I'm going to have a sip of a Coca-Cola, like that's never going to happen. Or I'm going to have like count out like five jelly beans because that's the portion that I should be eating. Like that stuff just doesn't happen. And the binge eating happens with sugar and coffee. Like I've never once met somebody who binges on broccoli or any of the foods that don't stimulate our dopamine or, you know what I mean, any of the chemicals in our brain that make us feel good. So I just got a bit of track, but we faced a lot of backlash in South Africa. The thing is that the restrictions in South Africa are a lot less in Canada and the United States. I mean, it's a third world country. So we could kind of like deal with it and work with it and push forward and get the media to tell both sides of the story. And then we had the big low carb conference there, which really helped push our a lot more awareness to what we were doing and a greater understanding that we weren't necessarily trying to create illness, but we were trying to find a solution and a solution to chronic disease. Like the thing that's killing most humans in the world, and especially now with COVID, like the people with the underlying conditions are the ones that are really getting sick and dying. And so even though there was a lot of backlash, it wasn't as bad as I think you guys face it in the United States. Because there it's also super blatant. You're like, okay, it's you, it's you, it's you. And like, we can call you out. I find, I feel that in the United States and Canada, it's so subversive and you don't know where it's coming from. And it's like this big black hole. And I mean, there's so much money here that can be behind anything that is really hard to understand. And so when we came here, we wanted, when we came to California, because that's where I am, we wanted to open a sugar and a carb addiction clinic. And that really was the reason we came, but trying to start it up and trying to get around the, or understand the limitations and the licensing procedure just 
we came up against so much, and this is not necessarily against sugar addiction, but just on like about opening a clinic. I got offered a job at CrossFit because of the talks I've been doing on sugar addiction in, in the United States. And so I just, I took that. I kind of gave up this dream of opening the sugar and carb addiction rehab here. But I've seen a lot of backlash here. I've spoken with Robert Stuyves and he's faced some battles. There are other practitioners who face the same stuff. I think it's getting better. I think it's more acceptable. I feel like with the carnivore community coming in, like that's so extreme for some people. They're like, eh, sugar addiction's fine because these guys only want to eat meat. So I think it's slowly being accepted as something that's real and very relevant. Yeah. And I love that when I heard you speaking before, you kind of were able to go under the guise of it being kind of a psychiatric treatment and that's how it was covered. But of course here, it not being in food addiction, sugar addiction, being in the DSM means treatment's not covered. So it has to be private pay. And Molly and I are both frontline workers. We have individual patients where or clients that we work with, with sugar and carb addiction. But if there was going to be an inpatient treatment center, there's, of course, milestones, there's retreat core, there's a few places. What are some suggestions that you would have for them to be successful from your previous experience and what worked really well? Well, I mean, in the treatment of it or in the business part of it? Well, more of the treatment uh, aspects of it, right? And uh, helping clients see them do really well on this. And I mean, obviously, they're in that safe setting of the treatment center and... I think the biggest thing is that it's not really about the food. It's like the food is like literally like the end point, the end user point of the whole equation. And I think once people understand that there's so much more, this desperate need for sweetness, like is inside that we're trying to find outside, or there's this emptiness inside that we're trying to fill with an external substance until people really internalize and understand that like nothing's going to change. And so in my experience and working with patients, we did very intensive trauma therapy where we took people through an incredible process that a group called Spirit to Spirit here in the US actually developed and they came to South Africa to train our counselors. And so there was this trauma component really getting to the core of your addiction. And it's all childhood stuff, like working with the inner child, the inner teenager, the abandonment, the loss, the sadness, the rejection, the fear, like that huge fear that we try and push down with food, working with that and healing that before anything else can really change. And so any treatment program that's like short, it may be like a band-aid and some people, it may work for them. But I think if you truly are an addict, there's so much work that needs to be done and that continually needs to be done. I'm in recovery. I have been for 17 years. Like, I still go to 12-step meetings. I still work the steps with my sponsor. I still have to do things every single day to stay in recovery. And my life is what it is today. And I have everything that I have today because of my recovery. And so I think the biggest thing is really looking deep into the childhood stuff and understanding what that is and where it comes from. And then starting to heal that, starting to fill this internal space with yourself and a higher power, what you want to call it. The 12 steps is huge. We did exercise. We did like just cooking, like basically getting back into the kitchen and understanding what food is and how to prepare it for yourself and how to nourish yourself from within without turning outside. And so knowledge, both educational, spiritual, emotional, and sense of community. I mean, together we can do what we cannot do alone. And to me, that rings true. It's like when, as my counselor did with me and my group, when I didn't believe in myself, 
myself when I couldn't take those steps. They did it for me and they carried me into recovery. And I was able to do that for other people as well. And so to foster a strong sense of community is really important as well. And group therapy, one-on-one counseling, like the usual, but uh, definitely a different approach to starting to love and accept ourselves as we are. And so much of what you're saying, Karen, it just really reminds me of a lot of like eating disorder type treatment as well. And so to hear you say those components would be, they're needed. They're necessary and needed when it comes to food addiction recovery. Do you think that the eating disorder camp and the food addiction camp can ever come together and agree in some way, shape or form? Or do you think that it will just remain contentious? Like, can we get past this moderation only message? I think everyone should just love each other. I mean, obviously, like everybody should work together. I think what comes in the way is like our egos. People wanting to own a specific treatment plan or have their name attached to like a brand. It's ridiculous. At the end of the day, we're all in the process of trying to heal people and heal ourselves, I think mostly, and then help other people heal. And so, yeah, we should all work together. There's not one program that exclusively works best. Like different people resonate with different programs, but we should all support each other instead of trying to cut each other down. And, you know, this like belief in scarcity and if they get patients and I'm not going to get patients, like such utter nonsense. We're moving away from the core of what we believe in, what we want to do, and that is helping people. So we're really moving away from our true intention if we start buying into that fear. And so, yeah, absolutely. Everybody should work together. The vegans, the carnivores, whatever, the moderation people, the sugar people, just suck it up. Like we're all there to try and make a difference. Right. And it's all about healing at the end of the day. Yeah. Right. Now you were telling before in your story, just about you live a life of recovery every day. So can you speak to us about that and what your like day of recovery would look like? And also maybe how you deal with some of those food pushers in your life? All right. So my recovery really is like every morning I will wake up and I will read a daily meditation. And the one that I love the most is Marianne Williamson's The Language of Letting Go. So I will... read that, which is aimed at codependence, which I really am. I think all addicts or alcoholics or food addicts or sugar addicts, like there's a huge component of codependency there. And like we didn't get here without it. So I'll do that. And then I'll do my prayer and mostly I'll do my meditation, but I suck at that, especially recently. And that's something that I need to get better at because my anxiety gets worse as my meditation goes down. So I know this. And then it's summer now, but during the winter, I would do like 10 minutes of Wim Hof breathing and then a cold plunge and it literally took 15 minutes but the difference it made to my and I am an anxious person generally the difference it made to my anxiety was profound like 15 minutes of doing this breathing and this cold plunging made the biggest difference and I will generally write down my goals and my vision for the day and I do I wake up two hours before my kids so I can get the stuff done because I believe that the foundation of that sets me up for success and no it's not fun and it is difficult and it's not like oh I get up sometimes and I'm like I hate this like I don't want to do this. I don't want to breathe. I don't want to say a prayer. Like, I don't want to do this, but I know that if I don't do it, it's going to affect me and affect the rest of my day. So I do that. And then throughout the day, I pray a ton and it's not that I'm religious, although I love and appreciate all religions. I am spiritual and I have a great belief in a power greater than myself. And I really do live that. And so I ask for help all the time. And if I'm feeling shitty, which I do, and if I'm having issues with myself and when I sink into fear, which I do often, you know, I reach out to my sponsor, my recovery friends, and they get me. They get that I sometimes spiral 
spiral out of control because my boss hasn't emailed and answered an email, right? And I have made up a story about why he hasn't answered my email. Like he's firing me. I'm a terrible worker. Like, like these stories just spiral out of control. These stories that lead me to want to eat on my feelings, to want to soothe myself with sugar. I have to stop that by phoning someone, phoning my sponsor, phoning a friend. And then I do about three to four recovery meetings every week. And I love Codependence Anonymous. It's absolutely my favorite, favorite program in the whole world. And it's really brought me back to myself and my behavior and identifying that and constantly working on it in a way that doesn't let me focus on food so much. But I had to go through this process to discover this program and also working the steps in a Overeaters Anonymous all of those before I got to this point of acceptance and understanding. And then before I go to bed, I journal and I take inventory of my behavior that day. Like, where did I harm myself? Where did I harm others? How is my behavior? Do I need to make amends to somebody or something? Where did I act out of integrity? And then prayer and bed. It's a busy day of recovery, eh? (laughs) Well, the thing is, it sounds so intense when I talk about it, but it's almost just like making myself breakfast. And it's just kind of like who I am and what I do now. It's not that it takes a ton of time. Like the mornings, I love to just be by myself. So those for me are great. And then the evening stuff can take five minutes. Right. And it's when you put your armor on for the day, then when those food pushers come into your life, you know what to be able to say to them and how you might deal with them, right? Yeah, totally. You know, I don't feel like I have food pushers in my life anymore. I feel like sometimes I can be a bit of a food pusher <laughs> with myself. <laughs> but I I mean, my friends all know me and they know what I do and no one can make me do anything. No one can make me feel anything. Like it's up to me. And so they have tons of like cakes and whatever they want to have. And, and as long as I don't have that first bite, I'm good. And if I am not feeling good and I am feeling a little bit down, then maybe I need to just stay at home and not put myself in that situation. So I need to learn how to take care of myself. It's no one else's responsibility. So well said. And I love that you kind of like reframed it with reality a little bit because I think people can get overwhelmed hearing, oh, this is what Karen does every single day for her recovery. And that just seems like so much and I'm never going to be able to do it. Right. And like you said, that whole story gets written before they're even done listening to you say what you do every day for your recovery. But to reframe it of like, yeah, it's like literally 15 minutes doing this. It's like five minutes at night doing this. And it's during the day sending up those little prayers of just like, give it away, give it away, give it away. Right. Keep me safe, whatever. For sure. And it honestly doesn't have to be complicated like it can be as simple as like reading a card and saying a prayer as you walk into the shower you know yes if you decide how to do it yeah thank you for clarifying that for our listeners (laughs) i know i'll get the panic emails and that's okay that's okay but yeah don't panic Keep what is what's that saying? Keep calm and recover on or whatever, right? Okay. So in our community, we do get a lot of questions about non-nutritive sweeteners and caffeine. And we know you've written a book. I've read it, and I love that there's food plans in there. I love that there's a food plan for vegetarians, all those things. And so I was just wondering from your lived experience, from your professional experience, like with the treatment center and working with sugar and carb addicts, what do you think about non-nutritive sweeteners and caffeine for that population? 
Okay, so sweeteners, especially at the beginning, I don't think is a good idea at all. Our brain doesn't recognize the difference between non-nutritive sweeteners and sugar. And so from a cravings perspective, it's hard. You're going to start craving, you're going to think that you had sugar, and it's, it's just not worth it. And also to like the importance of resetting your taste buds and just like recalibrating your body. I think that not having any sweetener, at least for 30 days, is a really positive thing to do. And then you can decide what you want to do with your life. Like I honestly like I'm super strict just about like no refined sugar and junk but whatever floats your boat like if diet coke makes you a little bit happy and you have like one little thing a day you know who am i to judge but i do think that mostly if you can stay away from it or make it a goal to at some point get to the point where you can stay away from it as well and then obviously different sweeteners are better or worse for your health but i think the thing that i focus on for sure is that your brain can't distinguish the difference between real sugar and fake sugar and so at the beginning like we're going to remove that it's going to be abstinence from sweetness and that sometimes includes fruit as well because fruit can also be very easy to overeat and so just like to reset just to get yourself back to understanding what things really should taste like and then caffeine literally my only vice and so don't ever take my coffee away from me sometimes I go to bed because I'm excited about waking up and having coffee that is like my thing And so I get that caffeine can be addictive. And with my anxiety as well, like I know caffeine is not good for me. I try to have two cups of caffeine, max coffee and max a day, which I stick to. And it's good. Like I only have it in the morning. But I do remember in early recovery, constantly wanting to drink coffee because there was that kind of like rush that I got from it. So, and at the rehab, we actually took away coffee and sugar especially in the primary care inpatient program because of the addictive effect. And we also took away cigarettes because of the addictive effect. And that was a disaster because when we told people they couldn't smoke, like the clinic emptied, it was crazy. So we had really good intentions, but the cigarette thing just pushed people over the edge. Those that smoked anyway, but we didn't have caffeine. We didn't have sugar and people survived and they did really well. Yeah. And you're right. We can start slowly and have that more harm reduction approach and meet people where they're at. And if maybe they get abstinent off these things, then the smoking can go after when they have a little bit more control just to give them something to still have, right? As that safety fallback sometimes. I've heard you speak about fat having a dopamine response. And for some individuals who are doing keto, that the over focus on fat can be troublesome for them. Can you speak a little bit about that? Like, was there some research that... Do you know where I got that from? I got it from Damon Gamo, who did that sugar book and the sugar film. Uh, oh, I did yeah. an interview with him and he was like, fat does have a smaller dopamine release and protein doesn't necessarily have one. And so when you come off sugar, like fat still has that small dopamine release, which I actually have not looked at the research, to be honest. But I know for myself that fat can be soothing for sure. And when I first went keto, I went way over on the fat and I was drinking my coffee with like half of it being heavy cream and fat bombs and just like so much fat, like eating all the fat. And I got fat because keto doesn't mean we have to just like eat as much fat as we possibly can so we can lose fat. Like it actually means that why what you eat, your body eats its own fat that you're needing to lose. And so it's not about just like binging on fat. 
which is the same behavior as binging on sugar. It's just like a different substance. And we don't call it sugar addiction because there is no sugar. So I think people have to be super mindful of that. Like that's actually not keto. That's just binging on fat. And so fat can definitely be soothing to me and can definitely make me feel like a little bit better for sure. Yeah, thank you. Because Clarissa and I are both in a holistic addiction medicine course with Bitten Johnson. And we've taken Esther Helga's Infect course out of Iceland. We're already clinicians in substance abuse and mental health. And then right to just kind of beef up so to speak, our knowledge and understanding of food addiction to help our clients that much better. And and so many people want to do keto because right there's like this magical effect that's been touted for a few years now. And not that keto doesn't have a place, but it's not necessarily for everyone is kind of what I'm picking up on here. And also that it needs to be done appropriately. And that maybe you need to watch that fat consumption because it could be almost like a methadone effect, right? Yeah. For... Yeah. Okay. I think it's, so you know, yeah, sorry. I think it's the quality of the fat as well. Like, so stay away from the inflammatory vegetable oils and all the nonsense that we were told and the products that were marketed to us as healthy, heart healthy that aren't. And I think those are the ones that are causing the trouble. And so just have the olive oil and balsamic on your salad instead of like those horrible salad dressings that are made with seed oils. And uh, have butter instead of margarine and cook with the appropriate fat as well. So I think it's more like that awareness when it comes to fat. It doesn't mean we have to like start drinking cups of olive oil. It just means that we have to be mindful of what we eat. And I think the biggest misconception is like we overcomplicate everything. Like it's just eat real food, eat green veg, eat cheese, eat protein, like eat good quality food as close to its natural state as possible and just stick to that. Yeah, agreed. So many of our clients are parents. And as a mom myself, who also identifies as having like sugar or carb addiction concerns, like, and so you do too, it sounds like, or have children and identify that way. How do you navigate feeding your kids without creating like that diet mentality? How do you navigate that toxic food world in regards to advertising and kids parties and how you eat versus how they eat? Or do you all eat the same? Can you speak to that at all for our listeners? Yeah. I basically just shame them into eating healthily. I'm just kidding. I don't do that at all. That was a joke. I am lucky to have two boys. And so I always am like, thank goodness. I feel so blessed to have two little boys who are pretty active and don't like have food issues or anything and pretty much have eaten just whatever I put on the table since they were little. And being in South Africa, it was really easy. We don't have the fast food joints everywhere. We mostly cook and eat at home. Going out to a restaurant or getting takeout is like a luxury. And so my kids grew up there until they were eight and 10. And then when we moved to the US, it was a completely different story. Suddenly we are bombarded with marketing. Everything has a drive-through. Nothing is difficult to get. And like, it's so easy to get stuck in that trap of not cooking, not putting in the effort, being so busy that food is literally the last concern. And so, you know, that's hard. And I think one of the biggest things that I've tried to just keep very part of our routine is having dinner together, like have a cooked meal for dinner together. And so it's not just a time when we eat, but it's a time where we connect with each other and have meaningful conversations and find out, check in with each other and how everything's going. My kids understand, obviously, like I've been hammering it into this since they were little, like what's good and what's not good and what makes your body feel good. And like, when are you hungry? And so they do eat junk. Absolutely but I don't keep drunk at home. 
And I try to keep my house as clean as possible because I don't have control of the outside world, but I do have control of what I feed them at home. Yeah, I love that answer because that's probably the place where they spend most of their time. So if it's clean there, then you're going to, even if you're 80% good foods, most of the time, you're they're far better than outside world, toxic outside world they're in from day to day. Right. And I mean, my oldest son is like, he doesn't love like vegetables. He's definitely like more into the sweet stuff, like fruit and whatever as well. And so sometimes you'd be like, oh, there's no food. And I'm like, well, then go hungry. There is a lot of food and you just need to deal with it. I'm not going to run to like please you. <laughs> no, I think that's great, right? And that's just the thing. Are you really hungry? Yeah. If the food I have in the fridge is not enough, yeah, right? And it's not going to fill you. So Absolutely. I love that. I love that. So as an outsider, it's easy to see you're beautiful. You have a great physique. You're head of CrossFit health. You have this very positive Instagram vibe. You're like a health superhero. And so obviously, like looking up to you, are there things you struggle with? And how do you deal with those things? Oh my gosh. I went through a stage where every morning I would wake up and the first thought in my head was you're fat, you're ugly, you're not good enough. And this was like a couple of months ago. It's not like this is years ago. Like I struggle with body image so much. Like it's such a thing for me. When I was growing up, my grandfather was really famous. He did the first heart transplant and he was always around really beautiful women. And I learned that how you look really matters and it matters more than anything else. I never doubted my intelligence. I never doubted that I could achieve anything intellectually, but I doubted what I looked like. Like what I look like scares me. I measure so much of who I am on my external appearance and it's sad. It's really, really devastating. And when I get to the point where I stand up and my first thought is, you're not good enough, you're not beautiful, you're fat, you're ugly, like something bad is going on. And that's when I really have to work my program. I really have to get back to basics. I have to work step one, just the powerlessness and the unmanageability because I'm unmanageable at that point. My thoughts and my feelings are unmanageable and I have to get to the base of it and understand what's going on in order to change it. And luckily I have recovery coping mechanisms. I also believe very strongly in mindset and the ability to be able to shift that with the feelings, with our thoughts and our words. And so I will move myself from a negative way of thinking and feeling to a positive like way. And I can shift myself pretty quickly, but that's like after years of practice and it's not something that happens all the time either. So I still struggle with body image issues. I don't restrict or binge or purge anymore because of it. There's definitely like when I turned 40 last year, there was definitely a much deeper acceptance of myself. There was like a way that I started feeling about my body that was based a lot more in gratitude than lack. So moving from a place of fear and shortage to a place of abundance and gratitude, but it's hard. I will still immediately default to the only thing I really have to offer. The only thing people really want me for are my looks. And it's not even that I think I'm beautiful or that I think I'm exceptionally, outstandingly, whatever, like I have a great body. Like I don't think that I actually don't place that much emphasis on it, but I still sometimes feel that I rate it much too highly. And it's definitely something that I'm working on myself. It's something that's hard. It's something that has been hard my whole life with trauma and stuff that happened when I was young, my body betrayed me. And so I still have a lot of healing to do when it comes to my body. And, you know, that's the thing with recovery. It's a process. I may look like 
I have great pictures that were taken by a professional photographer and I had makeup on and it was airbrushed. Do you know what I mean? Like, come on. I have cellulite and I have extra skin from like having two beautiful children and I have stretch marks and everything. And so I'm real and I try to be as real as possible at all times. I can tell you that living in California is hard. So much more emphasis is placed on like this perfect exterior. And I have to be so careful not to get stuck in that trap because there's so much more to me than my exterior. Clearly it's a topic that isn't easily spoken about, I think, especially with women, as far as this body dysmorphia or like these thoughts that we have that go along with that. And it just seems like, especially with sugar, carb, food addiction, whatever term we want to label it, it seems like, right? Like any other substance, you put down the alcohol, yay, everybody's clapping for you. You put down the heroin, yay, everybody's so happy. But it's like, we put down the food and then there's almost like this next kind of wave that comes in. And it's like, when are you going to lose weight? When are you going to look amazing? When are you going to wear the pant size that you always wanted to be in? Like, what's your ideal body weight, right? And it just, it's maddening because the relationship with the food is one thing, but the relationship with self, right, is so much more. And when we start pushing for those other things, and our culture obviously does that all just by itself in its own way without any help from (laughs) other recovering addicts. But yeah, so thank you so much for sharing that. I just appreciate that vulnerability because that's something that messes with me all the time. The whole like... Well, I mean, it's a diet culture there that's Mm -hmm. sex sells. And we place so much emphasis on bikini body and looking good in clothing. And I value my internal world so much more than I do my external. And yeah, the external is how I experience this world. But the greatest gift really is my internal world. And like my friends and people will tell you, and this I've experienced with other people as well. Like my real beauty is my personality, is the way that I approach life, is the way that I can love so deeply to the point where it's painful at times. But I can love that deeply because I have been rejected and abandoned and mostly rejected and abandoned myself in such a big way. So every experience that I've had, like every scar, everything that's happened has shaped me into the person today. And so I'm so much more than my body and I'm so much more than a bikini body or a body that looks good in clothing or a face that photographs well. And I think it's so important for people to really get back to what is important in life. And it's not your external appearance. Although that is fun, it's not the the core of what makes life beautiful. Not at all. I agree. And it's so funny. I don't remember who was talking about this that I recently listened to, but basically they were setting it up as we've become this nation of consumers, like ever since post-World War II with media and all the things we've been set up. They linked it back to economics and the GDP and all those things or whatever. But essentially it makes sense. We've been consume on your phone, consume food, consume magazine, consume, 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 Costco, Seance Club, right? Like don't just buy like little things that you need at the farmer's market few days at a time. No, no, go and buy these huge quantities, right? So it's this push to just more, 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 more. And I think those of us with the disease of addiction where we're already in this, our brains are already hijacked to want more. And then here it is, then it's never enough. And so thank you for just really putting a bow on that. I think it's just a beautiful perspective. So I really, I loved your book. And so I'm really curious to know what inspired you to write the book. We know that there's a kid's book on the way. Talk to us about the books and the projects that you're working on. I, what inspired me to write the book was 
publisher that approached me and asked me to write the book. So it wasn't that I set out to write the book. It just happened. And I actually went in to pitch another book about my grandfather. And he was like, yeah, it's okay. But so much of that's been done. But what about a book on sugar addiction? What you're doing is so interesting. And there isn't much literature, especially at that time available. So would you be able to do that? And so that's what started that process. That's what started a process into that book. And that book was written and was a bestseller in South Africa. And then I rewrote it for the United Kingdom and it was a bestseller there. And so it was an amazing book to write. It was great to get people's stories and experiences on paper and have like this program that people could relate to or do at home. And it did create change. It really created very positive change for the people who wanted to do it and who stuck to it and put in the effort. And if we put in the effort, we get the results. And so there is no magic pull or quick fix. Like you actually have to put in the effort. So that book was really cool and I love it. And it's available on Amazon still. Not that I'm punting it or that you have to buy it. But here's a special link and discount code. Just kidding. Actually, that book is cool and I appreciated it. And it wasn't something that I set out to do. So it was exciting that I got that opportunity and that I was able to actually do it. And then the next book that I've written with a pediatrician from San Diego, her name's Dr. Shaka Gillen, is a book for kids. So it's not actually for kids, it's for parents. But it's obviously aimed at kids. And so it's going to be called Sugar-Free Revolution Kids or Sugar-Free Kids. And it's so cool. It's very like straightforward and to the point. And it's meant to be that you can read it in one setting or just go through it. It's not complicated. It's not meant to like confuse you and make you like want to like just not do it. Like it's supposed to be relatable and it's supposed to be very practical. So we've written this book. We also have beautiful recipes from a chef in South Africa who devised these recipes. His daughter is a type 1 diabetic. So he's been dealing with this for the last 10 years. So he's developed these recipes that are really nice and they're really tasty and they're kid approved. And we do use some sweeteners. Like there are some recipes in the book for birthday cakes and other little things that it's that we have used sweeteners in because there's always a better way of doing it before you reach perfect. And I'm not a big fan of perfection anyway, because I am so imperfectly perfect. And that's something that I love. And so it's just about doing it better. Like we can all be better. And it's just stepping into that space continuously. Yeah, I love that. And I'm so excited. When does it come out? Is it out already? No idea. I will let you know. Well, we will link whatever books that you do have out there in the show notes so that people can purchase them, of course, because we think they're great. We think you're great. And we have a signature question for you. Okay. If you could tell a younger version of yourself something about sugar addiction, what would you tell yourself? Oh, that's a great question. And I think it's something that I came back to a lot. It's like you need to find the sweetness within. It's really about that. It's about you are beautiful. You are good enough as you are. The sweetness doesn't lie outside. It definitely lies within. And so go inside and get that treasure. That's your birthright and use it as best you can and just show up for yourself. Don't abandon yourself. Show up for yourself every single day. 
I love that car so much. <laughs> oh, it's been so wonderful having you on the show today. You just speak our language. You talk about all the really important pieces of recovery. And we're so grateful that you joined us today. I am so grateful. You guys are amazing. I love your work. I think you two are spectacular. And it's been such a great privilege and a joy to be on the show. And I can't believe an hour's passed because it feels I like know. we've been talking for 10 minutes. <laughs> We'll have to do it again. Yes. (laughs) Oh, thank you for your love and support. It means the world. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group. I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way, you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.